Hello and welcome to The Global Insight from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Claudine, with increasing frequency and at higher and higher volumes, we're hearing a message from Western developed economies, but particularly from the United States, which is saying over and over again, stop making things so far away from home. Bring your supply chains, bring your manufacturing, bring more of your economic activity closer, or at least do more business with our friends. What's going on with that? Be sustainable, be efficient, be more cost-effective, be geopolitically secure. I guess they're some of the big factors driving that. Let's start with that very last one about geopolitics, because somewhere in all of this, China looms large. Because I guess the real message here from the United States, but not only, is really stop making so much stuff in China. Um, And let's remember who our friends are. And we have this new, we won't use the E word, but we'll say rival. And we don't really want to feed that rival. I'm thinking of another word, a T word, Chuck, trust. Who can we trust? Ooh, nice. I think that's lying behind a lot of nearshoring. There's a lot of buzzwords around at the moment, and nearshoring is the one that we're going to talk about today. Onshoring, friendshoring. Reshoring. <sighs> we could go on. <laughs> and Not we will. offshoring. No one talks about outsourcing or offshoring as much. No, those are bad words now. Um, We could go on and we will, and we're going to go on with the help of colleagues in two countries that are always mentioned in the second sentence after stop making so much stuff in China. Um, Mexico and India are seen as, well, we'll ask our colleagues what they're seen as, uh, whether they're the new favorites, the old favorites. The always favorites coming back again. From Mexico City, we're joined by Alejandra Soto. Alejandra is an associate director in our political risk practice there. Alejandra, welcome. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here with, with you today. And from Delhi, we're joined by Ariaman Batnagar, who's a senior analyst in our political risk team based there. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Alejandra, you were recently involved in pulling together um, a great piece on nearshoring in Mexico, which is available for anyone to download on the controlrisks.com website. Talk us through what's driving nearshoring to Mexico at the moment. Thank you, Claudine. And yes, Mexico is actually the Latin American country that is most likely to benefit from this nearshoring trend. And this is underpinned by several factors. One of them is, of course, geography and the fact that we are located next to the United States. But not just that, and the fact that we share a long border and have integrated supply chains, especially in the border region in both countries, but also demographics. Mexico has a relatively young population and the skilled labor in in terms of the automotive sector, for instance. Mexico has a lot of trade agreements, which makes it attractive for other for companies to set up shop in Mexico, because that way they have access to several markets across the world. And there's also political and macroeconomic stability that these days we can say that about a lot of countries across the world. Another 
key factor is the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, also known as the USMCA, which is this modern, sophisticated trade agreement that has these rules that provide certainty to investments in Mexico. The North American governments will continue to increase efforts to take advantage of nearshoring opportunities in key sectors, which include electric vehicle industry, critical minerals, and semiconductor industries, for instance. And the talk here in Mexico is about on whether we are capitalizing on that or not. The Inter-American Development Bank, for instance, has this estimate of nearshoring resulting in above $35 billion per year in additional exports from Mexico. And the second country that would benefit most from it in Latin America is Brazil, and their estimate is below $8 billion per year. So the difference is massive. So Mexico is particularly well-placed to take advantage of these nearshoring opportunities. Alejandro, you're making it seem like Mexico is, is ready and raring to go um, that this is an opportunity that the country has sort of almost been waiting for all along. Is Mexico economically, politically, and operationally ready to take over whatever comes, let's say, from China? Yes, there are, of course, challenges. But overall, Mexico looks better than other options for nearshoring. And again, comparing to other Latin American countries, because of all of the elements that I just mentioned and some others, Mexico actually comparatively looks better. But of course, uh, these nearshoring opportunities in Mexico won't come without security, operational integrity and regulatory risks that we need to consider. If there's one challenge that springs to mind when you mention Mexico, it's often violence, I think. I think the equivalent for India is probably infrastructure. Um as as one that that I think is most obviously um, on people's minds if they're if they're thinking through what challenges they might face on entering the market there. Arya Manhattan, give us a flavour of what the what's driving nearshoring to India to the extent that it is indeed underway at the moment. What sort of um, attractions does India offer to companies looking for an alternative manufacturing base? So I mean, there is a lot of convergence as far as strategic interest and the political system is concerned. So I think there is, you see India as, as a potential ally as far as economics also concerned. And that is something that India has also pushed itself now. It has made economic engagement, trade engagement, a very core aspect of its strategic engagements with its, its key partners in Europe, Australia, Japan, and, and especially the US. So it realizes perhaps a little belatedly that the economic component is as important as the security and political component as far as these strategic relations are concerned. So I think in terms of economies of scale, it offers something comparable to China, which perhaps no other country in the world can offer to anyone else at this point in time. There is a broader macroeconomic and political stability. We have elections that are going to happen in 2024. One of the most likely scenarios that we are seeing is that there is likely to be a continuation of the same government for for another five years. And that offers a great degree of policy stability and policy continuity for investors as well. And you're looking at macroeconomic trends where India has shown a fair degree of economic resilience. The economic growth outlook is supposed to be far better for India 
as compared to some of the other countries, not just in the region, but globally as well. Going back to the point on political stability, and this is something perhaps we can also discuss more in detail when we are looking at the challenges. It is a government that has actively sought to promote a better business environment over the last few years. Obviously, there have been misses, but there is a certain degree of progress that has been noticeable as well. Can I ask both of you a question, not so much about domestic political or economic stability or preparedness from an infrastructure or logistics perspective, but since the nearshoring movement is being primarily driven by the rivalry between the United States and China, tell us a little bit about Mexico and India's position in that rivalry. Um, it, it, that must be a fairly difficult line to walk, um, no matter where you are geographically and no matter what your foreign policy is. Can you paint that picture for us a bit? I mean, it was a difficult line to walk, I think, till a few years ago for India. I think there was a certain degree of reluctance in India to deepen relations, especially security relations with the US. I think a lot changed following the border standoff between India and China in the summer of 2020. And I think since then, there has been a concerted effort to decouple from China economically as far as possible. We've seen that, that there has been a qualitative and quantitative tilt towards the US, towards the European Union and towards the Quad over the last two, three years now. But even despite that, I mean, decoupling from China for a country like India is is not an overnight exercise. Even now, about two and a half years after the border standoff, when there was a lot of anger in India and there was this strong political push towards reducing economic dependency on China, that has not happened. Even now, China is India's largest trade partner. I think trade statistics said that uh, our bilateral trade was in excess of $100 billion. And India is still dependent despite its push for greater local manufacturing, domestic manufacturing. India is still dependent to a large extent on China for raw materials without which it's not possible to, to promote that domestic manufacturing. You know, I think it does strike me that in some ways, nearshoring trends are almost an illustration of the limits of geopolitical fragmentation and the resilience of globalization. Alejandra, one of the interesting parts of your Nearshoring in Mexico report is, is, the, is the section on Chinese investment into Mexico. Chinese FDI in Mexico is certainly growing, but it's still far compared to US FDI in Mexico. And Chinese foreign direct investment in Mexico last year was of $167 million dollars while U.S. FDI in Mexico was $12 billion. So there's no way to compare the relevance of each relationship. While 80% of Mexican exports are, to, are going to the U.S., just 2% of Mexican exports are going to China. 43% of Mexican imports are from the U.S., and only 19% of Mexican imports are coming from China. And this combined with the geographic factors I mentioned, and the fact that being in the same region and being neighbors of the U.S., Mexico is actually a part of the U.S. national security, it is not that hard for Mexico to make a choice. 
So we will see increasing trouble with this increasing Chinese FDI. And now in all this context of near showing, we are seeing Chinese companies that want to come to Mexico and are looking into industrial parks in Mexico. So this will likely increase Chinese FDI in Mexico. But at the end of the day, Mexico knows which, which side it's in. And for instance, in some key sectors, we will have increasing pressure from the U.S. to not have Chinese companies get involved. We had a recent example with security detection equipment in the northern border of Mexico, and that automatically raised the red flag for the U.S., which was saying it will not be convenient that Mexico has a Chinese company in, in this area. So what we will see is increasing pressure from the U.S., as the appetite of Chinese companies grows in Mexico. But at the end of the day, Mexico knows where its allegiance lies. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face -face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. So we've unpacked some of the challenges that investors face in Mexico. I think we ought to do the same for India. I mentioned infrastructure earlier. Ariman, feel free to pull that string or, or give us your own set of top challenges that investors face if they are deciding to go for it and set up or expand their presence in India. So I think infrastructure is obviously something that does or gets flagged a lot as one of the challenges for investors. And I think logistics costs in India are significantly higher as compared to some of the other markets. But there has been progress. I think infrastructure is one of the areas where the government has really doubled down. Uh, the last three budgets in particular have seen a lot of capital expenditure being diverted towards infrastructure development. And there has been genuine progress also in terms of new roads, highways, railway lines being constructed in the country. And I think that is a trend that is likely to continue uh, over the course of the decade. Obviously, there are still bottlenecks where the speed of such projects are not fast enough, given India's ec stated economic goals. But it is something that is likely to improve with time. And obviously, infrastructure also means energy infrastructure. And I think power cuts is something that uh, is perhaps causing it's perhaps may have a slightly more bleak outlook as compared to infrastructure like roads and, and railways at this point in time, especially during peak summer months when there are regular power cuts. It does cause some amount of operational disruptions for businesses, especially the manufacturing sector. But again, like this is something that should improve with time over the course of this of this decade. I think I mean, obviously, there are challenges and in many ways, the story is very similar to what is happening in Mexico, where there are like the regulatory maze is extremely burdensome. There are several compliance measures that people that businesses have to follow, uh, which increases both regulatory scrutiny as well as compliance costs. But these are all gradual steps that the government has taken in order to kind of ease the the process of doing business. Obviously, it is still probably in the teething stage. So I don't think that it may have necessarily reached the level which is comparable to certain markets in Southeast Asia, which have done far better in the last few years as far as attracting business from China is concerned. But again, I would say that 
I think generally there is a slightly more optimistic outlook as far as the long-term regulatory environment is concerned. I think one of the bigger concerns would be in terms of labor. And I think India does get a lot of positive vibes as far as uh, the low cost of labor is concerned. But I think there's also concerns about the skilled or the lack of skilled workers in India, which again remains a, a, a structural problem because there isn't enough emphasis as far as skill development is concerned. That is still fairly in the nascent stage, though there are several government schemes to kind of promote that, but that hasn't really happened as yet. And I think the other challenge that businesses, especially in the manufacturing sector, continue to face is to do with land acquisition. We've seen both the federal and state governments try to step in and, and provide land to businesses, but there have been several instances of projects getting delayed because the land clearances haven't come through. A particular one example, which is to do with a bullet train that is being constructed, it, it took nearly six years for that land clearance to come through. I think at this point in time, we have been successful in attracting some companies from China, which have mostly been in the electronics sphere, but we haven't really managed to do that uh, with many of the other sectors. We've talked, haven't we, Ariane, about how some of the, the companies that have made the move in that electronics world, the tech world, they're symbolically significant, right, in terms of, you know, perhaps the, the, the way that they fare, how they get on, will determine and help inform a whole wave of other decisions by companies about whether to go for it. So I think they might be comparatively small scale in terms of the scale of investment made so far, the number of sectors involved. But presumably, if they have success, that will open the door to a much broader wave of investment. Yeah, I think so. I think there would be a, a good case study to see how uh, what sort of progress there is over the next two, three years. Uh, I just wanted to add one very quick point, which I missed out on, which is also to do with India's integration with the global supply chains. And I think we spoke, I think there was some reference to free trade agreements in, in the case of Mexico earlier. And I think that is something where India has been lacking. We've been reviewing our uh, free trade agreements. We walked out of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which brings together about 14 or 15 countries in the Asia Pacific. But as far as our own bilateral free trade agreements are concerned, though, uh, we have been negotiating with all the important economic partners for many years. The progress has still not been fast enough as far as you know, if, if you align it with India's ambitions to be a export hub as well, then is something that does act as a, dis a disincentive. Yeah, that's a good point, Ariman. 16, 16 free trade agreements, I think Mexico has, um, Alejandra, just quoting your report there yet again. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly sitting here in London, there's a lot of hope around potentially a UK-India free tra trade deal at some point in the near future, but uh, as yet, no detail around when and what that might look like. Let me see if I can squeeze in a last question here and ask Alejandra and Ariman for the moment to forget about being a country expert or a regional analyst. Um, because Ariman, you raised, you mentioned the word decoupling in your conversation about the relationship between the Chinese and the Indian economies. And the other thing that we hear a lot from clients when we talk about nearshoring is deglobalization. Um, and, and what that means or what that implies as a sort of unraveling 
of the past 30 years of economic development. And what I've been hearing in your comments so far is not deglobalization, but a different kind of globalization that involves newer players or different players and, and, and newer patterns and, and, and changing patterns. Um, Alejandro, tell me what you're thinking about, you know, maybe because you're sitting in Mexico City or maybe because you're also concerned with global affairs. This Is this, well, let me leave this an open-ended question for you. You know, is this the end of globalization? Is that something our clients should be concerned about? Or is this just something evolutionary? Yes, I don't think it's the end of globalization. And you're right. It's more like a change in, in these patterns. We're seeing now an increased focus on regional alliances. And it's interesting because even given this context of backtracking from globalization a little bit, when you have some politicians in several countries these days, but in Mexico in particular, with a very nationalistic agenda and most nationalistic rhetoric. This would be gold, right? Backtracking from globalization. But actually what we're seeing is that despite this nationalistic rhetoric, there's a lot of interest in these regional alliances and making the region stronger together as an economic partnership. So this will persist. Again, if even with a president that has such a nationalistic rhetoric, this is happening. Whoever comes after President López Obrador would even be more inclined to be more explicit about this. So I'm hopeful about this. I'm actually optimistic about the place Mexico has in this global context to capitalize on these nearshoring opportunities. And Claudine mentioned this earlier, but there are some inertias that will continue to happen as they happened before with the previous NAFTA deal in the automotive sector. Now we will see this inertia. And right now, over the past couple of months, we've seen relevant announcements by large companies for electric vehicles to produce electric vehicles in Mexico. So as this continue to, to happen, as these investments continue to materialize in Mexico, there will be inertia that will increasingly push Mexico toward the, towards the place it needs to be, to be even more benign to attract foreign investment and mm-hmm. make the most out of this nearshoring opportunity. Ariman, how does it look from India? I don't think that this is the end of globalization. I don't think India uh, wants to imagine the new global order, for the lack of a better word, as a de-globalized one. I think, obviously, from a purely global affairs perspective, I think India wants obviously wants a reform in the way international the international order is structured and it wants to be seen as one of the leading figures that can influence that reform and and there can be a larger voice and representation of the global south but at the same time it also wants to be a leader it it wants to be the manufacturing hub it wants to be a hub from where or it wants there to be greater contribution of indian made products in in the global supply chains so it wants there to be a a greater, a more integrated global order, but obviously a far more reformed one than what, uh, from an Indian perspective, is a fairly Western, uh, Eurocentric-led global order. The fact that these geopolitical factors are driving this trend are the reason to think that we still need to think globally 
to understand these trends and make the most out of it for each of our regions. I personally broadly agree with um, what Ariman Alejandro have asserted there. I, I don't think we're seeing the end of globalization. You, Chuck? No. In, in fact, I'm like Alejandro. I think I'm actually a, a bigger believer now in the future of globalization, but just a different kind. We haven't heard anything about a complete withdrawal within some sort of, you know, fortress. Um, and, and no country can accomplish complete economic independence. I, I think Alejandro's made an interesting remark in the, the difference between a political leader's nationalist rhetoric and some of the global and economic reality that surrounds that kind of talk. Um, and actually, frankly, that can carry on for years. Um, that sort and w- without any sort of apparent tension between the two arguments, and and so um, we haven't heard anything from our colleagues today that says that globalization's over. Um, it's just going to be different. Alejandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Claudine. It was great talking to you. Ariman Batnagar from Delhi. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening.